Hey, just a heads up that the following content may be disturbing or triggering for some listeners and is not appropriate for children. Please take care of yourself and others who may be listening with you. Welcome to the Bonus Babies Podcast, a show that has no easy answers, only hard questions. And when I finally reached, like, the head of the snake, the head of the snake is telling me, you called too late. Can you tell me what you call the kids who you've cared for over the years? We feel that the children that we receive coming into our home are bonuses. So we call them bonus babies. I love that. This is your host, Jane Amelia Larson, and I'm a CASA volunteer, a court-appointed special advocate for youth in foster care. Yeah, I know it's a mouthful. In the same way a CASA works, I explore all things in the foster care maze by talking to kids, parents, caregivers, attorneys, social workers, therapists, anybody and everybody who will speak to me to keep the conversation open and the information flowing about all things CASA. When I first started dreaming on this podcast, I just had no idea about the potentiality of the powerful stories that I would be hearing, that my guests would be sharing. So very compelling and sometimes just flat out astounding. My guest today, Vaughn Laws, is a former foster youth who threw himself out of a three-story window when he was four years old in order to save himself, to save himself from abuse and neglect. So this, this is a story of triumph, a story of a brave and courageous kid. Hi, everybody. I'm here with Vaughn. How you doing? Vaughn, hello. Hey, how's it going? How you doing today? Uh, I'm, I'm okay. I mean, uh, we're still in the middle of COVID, but otherwise I'm all right, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> How about you? About as all right as I can be. Just trying to keep myself busy these days. Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I totally get that. So I'm going to let you just talk about yourself. I'm going to ask you some questions and you can tell me what's going on with you. So tell me a little bit about your background. Um... I grew up in the foster care system. Um, home became all the programs where I got to meet other foster kids that kind of understood what it was like to just kind of grow up in it, you know? Right. And how, how old were you when you went into care and what were the circumstances? I was like five years old, technically. I left my biological mother's care at four and turned five in the hospital, and then I entered care. Right. And how did that happen at four? Uh, I guess it was more of a, a ran away from home situation. Most people believe that whenever it's a situation of foster care, that it's, you know, the child being removed from the home by like authority figures or like family members taking action or something. But in my case, and at least in like three other cases that I can think of off the top of my head, we kind of just had to do it ourselves. And for me, that meant like jumping out of the third story window at four years old. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, wait a minute. You jumped out of a third story window when you were four. Yeah, I climbed down the side of the building. And you were doing that as what, as a way to save yourself? Yeah. There was, I mean, there, I had no other option. My mom was, uh, I was like a prisoner in the house, uh, you know, strictly there to be her sandbag whenever she needed to blow off some steam. And so there was no, like, me leaving my room and exiting through the front door. I was just trapped in my room, and my only option was that window that led to the outside. Wow, and you remember this, huh? Yeah. 
Oh, man. Okay, so then you were in the hospital. You, you obviously were hurt. It's like three stories, right? I don't remember being hurt. All I remember is my leg got caught and like I, I got it unstuck and managed to get down and just waited for help. I remember my family members and everyone around me being extremely concerned, like, oh, I don't know how this could happen. Like, you seem like you're, you're, you seem like you're okay. Your mom seemed like she was fine, but like to see you like this, it's crazy. And, uh, you know, to me, I was just kind of glad to be out of there. Right. And what do you think was going on with your mom? Uh, initially, my family's excuse was that she was just on drugs, that she needed a little help, she needed rehab. And then she went, and after she got out of prison and whatever rehab system that she might have been sent to, I get when I'm 14 that I have a younger sister that's also been sent into foster care. They actually managed to find her because she didn't save herself, but they found her in the same way that I was at one point because of my mom. She's ill. She's sick. And I, I, I like... I know this is probably not a good thing, but I don't think I could ever exist in the same room peacefully with her. Yeah, well, um, that would be a really hard thing to ask of anybody that harmed a kid in that way. All right, so what do you remember then after the hospital? Uh, a lot of it. Um, after the hospital was the first foster home, which was kind of like a... It had two sides of the coin. There was the like getting bullied by my foster brother because I'm the new kid in the house and he's afraid that I'm going to take all of the attention away. And then there's the sisters who see me as the kid that actually does need to be protected. He's scared. He's like has no idea what's going on. And there was that like that give and take that push and pull. Thinking back on it, I think I probably could have stayed there. But the alternative option at the time, which was living with my grandma, sounded like a way better option. Right. And you knew your grandmom then? You knew her? Yeah, I knew my grandma and I, I loved her. I had a really deep attachment to her. Again, in hindsight, looking back on like everything that I've been through in all of my life now, I feel like it was kind of an unhealthy attachment. I feel like it's weird for a grandson to say he had an unhealthy attachment to his grandma, you know? All right. Well, so what happened with your grandma? Uh, she came, she, she took me out of the foster home into her legal guardianship for about two years. I, you know, it wasn't with the promise that it was only going to be two years. You know, when your grandma comes to pick you up, you think, oh, cool. Family's here. Take care of me now. So I don't have to worry about anything. Now I'm taken care of. And, uh, I turned seven. It was like seven or eight. I don't remember exactly. But it's roughly around that time that, uh, you know, the family has a party and, you know, my grandma tells me to come with her to get in the car. And there's like stuff in the back seat. I'm not paying attention to it because, you know, yeah, I'm young. I don't have this isn't on my mind. I'm just wondering where are we going? And she takes me to DCFS, leaves me there. And I'm there until like four o'clock in the morning because they can't find a single foster home to put me in and end up putting me in a group home. And there was this lingering thought for a very long time that maybe I was the problem, that maybe I messed up, that I did something wrong. But as I got older and like I start to like reevaluate them and, you know, I, I think about how I was then compared to how I was after what transpired. Before leaving my grandma, I was just a really sad kid. I was a sad kid with a lot of energy. Sometimes I had to go outside and run a lap. But other than that, I could sit down 
in class. I didn't start trouble. I didn't get angry. I didn't, you know, cause fights or anything like that. But after going from the group home to like the following foster home. Yeah. So so hang on one second. Talk to me about the group home, because a lot of people don't know at all what those are like and they can be very different. But what, what was yours like? I'm not sure exactly how all group homes work, but I, I know there's just strictly boys and uh, that's just a lot of testosterone. And it's not boys all of the same age or close to the same age. It's like a 17-year-old, a 14-year-old, a 7-year-old. And like, you know, you you all have to share rooms. You have to share spaces. You, you got to sign out what toy you're going to play with. You know, that aspect isn't that bad, but it, it gets more troublesome when it comes to dealing with the other foster kids because we all have our own issues that we're bringing to the table and all different levels of having dealt with it and kind of just ends up pushing it on everyone else. Uh, I remember my roommate was uh, was really, really angry, like uh, you know, I'm seven. I, I saw cheese and crackers on the dresser and I grabbed it and I ate the cheese and crackers. And he's like a 17 year old teenager and like rages. It, it, it was really scary. But for me, after he calmed down, I saw that as like, OK, he seems like that works for him when he doesn't know how to deal with the emotion that he's currently feeling or he doesn't know what to do right now. So I guess at some point that kind of just slowly seeped its way in and like made itself a home and like pointed itself in a direction of where all the pain really came from. Right. So you're talking about for yourself that it, it made a home in you, that kind of rage, that kind of anger. Yeah, to a degree. Okay. So how many kids were in that home? Do you have any, any idea? Was it like, was it like 10? Was it like 50? I do not remember. I know there was a lot of us coming and going. At one point, there was five. Yeah. So then after that, did you end up in a foster home or did you go from group home to group home? Or After that, I went straight to a foster home. And that was Miss W? Yeah. She was an interesting character. <laughs> <laughs> I liked her on a lot of different levels. She allowed me to have pets. She got me and my foster brother uh, rabbits at one point, and it was really, really awesome. I took care of mine. Uh, he took care of his, but, you know, kids taking care of rabbits. I did a pretty good job. I'll say this now because I don't want to sound like a bad pet owner. I was an excellent pet <laughs> owner. Uh, it's just my younger foster brother was less such. It was really messed up. He liked to, like, he had a gerbil and his rabbit, and he liked to either, like, slam them into each other, put the gerbil in his mouth, or, like, slam the rabbit into a brick. And it was the most sick, twisted thing. But, like, he was the one still getting, like, a whole PlayStation for Christmas. Oh, right. So she favored him? Is that what was going on? Yeah, the, that's where I learned that favoritism was definitely a thing. And I only say that because I felt like I put forth my best effort to be her foster son. I, I did my best in church as much as I could. You know, I had my my behavioral issues. What kid doesn't, especially, you know, one with ADHD. There was one point where uh, I, I actually saved her life calling 911. I came home from school, me and my foster brother. We walk into the house and I see her collapsed on the floor, shaking and fluid running out of her mouth. And my first instinct is I tell him, dude, go get the phone now. He goes and grabs the phone. I take the pills out of her hand and like I throw them because that's the only thing I can think to do. 
And, uh, you know, he brings the phone, we call 911, and the ambulance arrive and, you know, give her, I don't remember exactly what it's called. Right, like CPR, probably. Yeah, some kind of CPR or... It, it wasn't like CPR. They hooked her up to, like, machine. So you saved her life. Yeah. Right. And how do you feel about that now? I mean, if I had to go back and relive that moment, I'd definitely still do it again. I, I still had a lot of respect for anyone uh, who took a hand in raising me, but there were a lot of moments where it felt more like she was only raising me for the fact that she gets paid to do so. Right. And how do you feel about, I've heard, I, I haven't met a lot, but I know that there's a lot of foster parents, people say they're doing it for the money. What's your What's your take on that? It's disgusting. There's something that I, I talked with a, a few friends about a long time ago. Foster youth were supposed to get an allowance for them to be able to get food after school or like for them to get clothes if they need them. And it was like, it was $100. That was what it was, $100 a week. Didn't seem too expensive, but then I remember looking back at like my allowances at the end of every week and it was like, a dollar every week and I'm like okay something's not adding up here like it's nice that I still got this dollar you know I'll do my best to to treasure it but I it made me wonder what was happening to the money that was supposed to be for me to go buy clothes because I wasn't getting new clothes I was getting hand-me-downs out of you know the trunks in the garage I was getting you know shoes that were worn down to like almost nothing out of goodwill and it bugged me it bugged me a lot and then what happened with that home did you go from home to home did you stay with miss w for a while did you what happened then i stayed with her for probably about a year for my second and most of my third grade year i stayed with miss w she ended up getting rid of me after my 10th birthday i, I want to say i came to live with her when i was eight Right. So what does that mean? She got rid of you? Uh, literally, she called up DCFS, put in, uh, I think at the time it was like a seven day notice was what was required. But what's not required is that you tell the kid that you put in the seven day notice. So for them, it's kind of like I came home from school. She was like, oh, yeah, I got these black trash bags for you. Go ahead and put all your stuff in them. And I was like, what? She was like, yeah, uh, your social worker is going to be here in a bit. Go and pack your stuff. You're getting ready to go. And it's just like confusion. I don't know why, where. I thought we were good. I thought I was the responsible one. I was the one that was actually taking care of you. This one, like, is younger than me. One, two, like, just sits in his room and plays with his action figures. And like, well, it sounds like you were doing everything you could to make that home work, right? And you felt that you were. Yeah. I guess I'd call it, uh, no, I don't know what I would call it. I was going to say I'd call it people-pleasing, but that's kind of like, I guess, a survival tactic at this point. It was, I feel like I have to stay on people's good side, especially people who hold the position of, like, my safety and security over my head. Yeah, you know, because I know you from Peace for Kids, I've seen that very often your default is to smile and be really affable, even when maybe you don't feel that way, right? Yeah, Absolutely. I have this thing at Yogurtland where my coworkers tell me that, you know, they're shocked at how good I am with handling the customers. But I like whenever the customer leaves after the customer walks out the door, I'm like, I'm not having fun. I don't enjoy talking to them. It's just easiest to like smile and wave, you know, less awkward interactions or even if it is awkward, it doesn't last long. And it's not going to be bitter. It's not going to be something that lingers. 
Right, you're just super adaptable, Vaughn. All right, so what happened? Then you were replaced with, with Dory, right? Yes. So what was that like? <laughs> that was another interesting placement. Uh, it was my first placement with having an older brother, but my older brother was mentally younger, if that makes any sense. I think that's just the most PC way I could say it. I love him. I love Shannon. But he drove me up a wall. It was the most difficult, intense, crazy, sideways, upside down, backwards thing ever. Wow. And like <laughs> all at the age of 10, because this was like my first time dealing with someone with like mental disabilities. And so to me, being who I am, I was always told that I was smarter than your average bear. And I enjoyed reading books and encyclopedias. So I'd put myself up there with the smart kids, but like having that dynamic of sitting in a classroom full of other like big brain, heavy IQ kids. And then like, what else is out there? Like, how are you going to handle this situation? Because you can't reason all the time with, with your brother, if he doesn't necessarily understand the reason that you're trying to reach, you know? So how are you going to, how are you going to reach that? Because there's a lot of people in this world there that are like that. And it forced more adaptability into me at a younger age, which caused me to, I guess, grow mentally older. I became a lot more patient. I don't get as angry in, in altercations with other people. Most of the time, people can say pretty much whatever they want, and I'll laugh it off. I will get outwardly angry at another person is literally one, one cause, is if I get hit in the face, and that's it. So the way you are now is a little different than the way you were because you told me you were also filled with a lot of rage too. Very much so. Very much so. By the time I reached Dory, I was probably at my angriest. And this is why I'll forever say I love her because I was an absolute tyrant when I got angry. I, I, I wasn't like threatening people in the house tyrant when I got angry. I was more so like just doing damage to the house itself. I'm like punching walls, leaving knuckle imprints, and all the while, you know, going to therapy. And the part that made it kind of complicated for me, like, and made it harder for me to exit that angry phase, even though I was in therapy, was kind of having every tactic that was given to me by the therapist that Dory told me that I need to go see just not work, just blow up in my face when I try to use them in the situation that makes me upset. Most of the time, it was just a lot of push and pull between me and her where we just didn't see eye to eye. I had a, a, a huge pet peeve about being talked to as though I didn't understand anything. She had a history of being used to raising Shannon. She had been raising Shannon for an incredibly long time. She had been raising Shannon as long as I had been living with her. So I had been living with her 10 years. She had been raising Shannon for over 10 years by the time I had already met them. There's a lot there and like breaking it down to a point where it seems more understandable for like a 10 year old. But for a 10 year old that is mentally 13, 14, it's really insulting. And it just made me angrier over time and I'd lash out. It started off with just me going and losing it, just going off and punching a door. And then as time went on, it went from that to more, uh, I don't like where this conversation is headed right now. I don't appreciate being talked to like that. And, you know, it, it turned into this back and forth of, well, I am the adult and you are the kid, so you are going to listen. At that time, you know, I didn't. I still didn't have any control. I couldn't just go walk away because even if I did go walk away and put myself in a space where I can calm down or meditate or 
or goes in and let it roll off my back. It was like she's right there behind me, reinforcing her idea that her idea is as solid as a brick wall and that there's nothing that I can do about it. I guess long story short about that is it became it made the household really, really stressful for me. There were a lot of great times, though. You know, that's not to say that the household was only stressful. It was mostly stressful just interacting with her most of the time. I think I reached the peak of this stress when I entered middle school and she retired from her job because that's when she was just home all the time. So there was no like hour or two before she got home from work. There was just like I get home from school. She's right there. And like she's already in my ear telling me you didn't do this. Well, you need to do X right. Um, Get on it. (laughs) Yeah. So do you think it's possible that by that time she saw the potential in you or do you think that She's a teacher and she was going to talk until she felt you heard her. I think it was a mixture of both. I kept trying to convince myself that it was because she saw potential, that she saw that I could do better, that she saw that I could do great. And then like when like our arguments became more so about she told me to do something uh, or or, uh, she thought she told me to do something and like it was just a never that communication between us. And then she comes, what happened? I thought I told you to do that. And I'm like, you didn't. And then it's, oh, so you're telling me that I'm wrong all of a sudden. And like, I can't tell you yes, because then you're going to get even more angry. And then this is just going to make the problem even worse for me. It, it turned from like her seeing the potential to more seeing what issues I I have. Uh, The way that she described it at one point was like preparing me for the real world. Like, I think that's a really disgusting phrase to, to tell any child that's come through the foster care system at any given point. We know what the real world is. It's extremely confusing and it's extremely scary. But don't think that doesn't mean we don't know what it is. We might not have understood it at the point in time when everything was going on around us. We don't have the vocabulary to put what we're experiencing into words. But as we get older, we we develop that lexicon to be able to to like articulate these these emotions and these feelings and these thoughts about like all this stuff going on around us and how we understand it and how it makes us feel and how it relates to us in our lives. I think this is a really important point, Vaughn, because a lot of people think that just because a little kid can't express himself or can't name something or can't describe something doesn't mean he's not experiencing it. Doesn't mean he's right in the middle of it, in the the, the thick pain of it, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So I've seen that you're a really good older brother. I've seen you with your younger foster brothers. How, how, did, how did you learn that if you didn't have that role model? Because you didn't, right? I did not. No. I guess I learned it from being what I wish I had all the qualities that I wish my own other brother possessed, you know, was being there by my side. So you have an older brother, right? And you you mentioned a younger sister, but you also have an older brother, but... I have an older bio brother, but we don't talk. And you have memories of him? A few. Not very good memories. And then the best memory I have of him is kind of him just sleep most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Right, just leaving you alone, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you think you've become a good older brother because you you were trying to emulate what you wish you had. Yeah. And you have a little sister, right? Yeah. You find that out later. I, I found that out when I was like 13. Mm-hmm. And do you have a relationship with her at all? 
exactly. I think she's like five years younger than me. I'm not exactly sure. I don't want to be quoted, but I, you know, I know I did a lot of asking around the family, you know, what's her birthday? Like first and last name. That way I can just look through DCFS if, if she had the same upbringing as I did. And then I can, you know, make that contact. I can establish that contact and let her know, hey, you're not alone. I'm here. You know, I've been through it too. And I got your back if you need anything. Don't feel like you have to do everything alone. Because for me, that's how I ended up feeling because of everything that I, I had to go through with, you know, our mom and, and our family was that kind of, I have to depend on myself. I'm I'm the only one that's going to be able to make any sort of change in my life. Yeah, I remember that you told me that in, in court, the thing you remember the most is that you were kind of waiting for your family to come get you, to come save you, to come rescue you. And that never happened. Tell me about that. It came as a really bitter thought when I finally realized that they were never going to come. Uh, you know, it was just years of going to court every every two or three months. Uh having all the other kids get called to the purple door. And like anyone who knows what, who's listening should know what the purple door is. That's where, you know, you go and see your family, you go and see your attorney. And, you know, some of my friends coming back and telling me, oh, yeah, my my aunt or my uncle or my grandma or my mom or my dad was there or my brother or my sister, you know. And then, like, I get called to go to the purple door and, like, I go from the purple door straight to my attorney. There is no, like meeting with my mom there is no meeting with my grandma like my grandma doesn't even show up to court my mom doesn't even show up to court nobody like nobody puts forth any sort of effort to to like come and and try to like put my life back together they're like all right bro you're you're out there now you're you know you're old enough to figure it out right eight years old that's old enough to be able to do it all on your own no it's not actually Vaughn. it's not have you heard about the CASA program? Uh, probably. The, the reason in part why I'm doing these, this podcast and these interviews because I became a CASA shortly after I started volunteering at Peace for Kids. And a CASA is a court-appointed special advocate volunteer for one foster kid. Uh, it's not like a social worker that has 30 kids. And the idea is that there's one person out there that is looking out for you, not paid to look out for you, but one person looking out for you. Do you think you would have liked something like that? I feel like something like that would have been awesome. Um, but I don't know if I, like myself, would have been able to like trust the process of it. And that's solely because of like the amount of disappointment that I've kind of just had to experience is kind of set the tone for what the next 30, 40 years are going to look like, you know? When you aged out, did you have the opportunity to get a private detective to find either your father or your sister or any siblings or anything? No, absolutely not. No one even told me that was like a thing. If it was, I most definitely would have tried to find my dad, probably. Either my dad or my sister. On my 21st birthday, I got a phone call from my attorney telling me that uh, my case was going to be closing, that, you know, it was going to be the last time we talk. That if, if, I, if I needed any help with anything, you know, they couldn't get me the grant money that I should have gotten when I graduated high school, but they could get me a, a suit that I could use for work or for jobs. What, they told you to visit court to get a 
Like a wardrobe? They told me to come down to the court to, to get a new wardrobe. It just seemed really backwards. Like, okay, I'm, I'm aging out of care. I, I, I understand that. And if you're not going to offer any more support, why do I have to come down to the court to, to pick up a suit? I don't want to be down at that place anymore if I don't have to. Right. And, but you must have a lot of other questions, right? A lot more frustration than questions. Kind of every other question that I had was like answered beforehand of uh, transitional housing. How is that going to work now? Because now that I'm 21, I'm still living with my parents. And like, I don't I don't want to live in my foster home. I do want to move out. But like everyone's giving me a runaround. So what now? And same response was kind of your case is closed. There's kind of you can call. I don't know, maybe call DCFS and see if there's something that they could do. And then, you know. That starts a loop of like literally everyone I called telling me to call somebody else. And when I finally reached like the head of the snake, the head of the snake is telling me you called too late. Wow. So what are you doing now? Because you have a kind of a cool opportunity that just showed up, right? Uh, Right now I'm working with a community organization uh, with NFYI, National Foster Youth Institute. And it's really, really awesome. Uh, You know, we're spearheading different issues that plague foster care, that plague our community, and doing whatever we can uh, to bring issues to light, bring the voices to light so that people understand that, like, things need to change. Okay, so so tell me what, what you plan on doing. It's literally to get people to understand and come together and, like, do something to change how the foster narrative is written. Most people believe that once you go into a foster home, that's it. You're taken care of. You're in a new loving environment. You might get adopted. And if you don't get adopted, it's cool. You know, there's still people that love and take care of you. They're your foster parents. But like, it's not that. It's not that at all. It's like you go in and it's confusing. It's scary. And there's always like a different sort of like obstacle or challenge in the way. And Every kid has had to deal with that. Every kid understands that. Even if they did get adopted before that adoption process, they still understand what that that fear is, that fear of bringing this giant black plastic bag into like a stranger's home and not knowing whether or not it's going to be one of those that you see on TV and in the commercials that are like, ha ha ha, I made you a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with the crust cut off. Or is it going to be one of those, I'm going to lock your door every day at 10 o'clock and you better be in there. Otherwise, if you're not, the door is just locked. And I know that sounds like crazy, but that's actually stuff that happens to, to kids in care. And I only know it because it happens to me. And it's happened to like, like I've heard stories of like kids being locked out of their whole homes and like in middle school because they didn't make it home in time for curfew. They made it like five minutes later and then that was it. They couldn't get in the house. And, you know, when the social worker comes to the house, though, that's not what they're hearing. That's not what they're being told. Even, you know, they're being told that everything in the house is okay. And most of the time, as, like, a foster kid, just for the sake of, like, getting the conversation over, I'm going to say it's okay. I've heard that before, that kids just say what they think the adult wants to hear just so that they don't get in more trouble, right? Absolutely. And you want to change all that, right? Absolutely. Things need to change because this is ridiculous. And what makes it even more ridiculous is that, you know, after what I've been through, after what my homeboy has been through, after what 
his friend has been through after what his girlfriend has been through you know there's still kids coming through the system with like the same problems the same issues and it's messed up it's ridiculous absolutely ridiculous that kids are still insecure because you know they're told that they're not good enough or that what they're doing isn't good enough or no one's like taking any stock in any of their interests or anything that they're doing instead they're like all right how can we keep you alive that seems to be like the bare minimum requirement at every foster home that i've been to is just how can we keep you alive that's all we need to do not um are you happy are you healthy are you are you mentally sane like and and I only say that to bring up the point of I ended up developing insomnia at like a pretty early age where like I just didn't sleep. And it wasn't a matter of like I was up all night on my phone. I was up all night on the computer, up all night reading. And I would literally just lay in bed and stare at the back of my eyelids for hours because I could not sleep. And it's because I was too stressed to sleep. I had too much going on in my head. There was too much, oh, like when I wake up in the morning, my mom's already going to be here. She's going to get on my case about X, Y, and Z. And I kind of just haven't done anything yet to for her to get on my case. Or she's going to have like a bunch of really complicated assignments that are probably going to go conflict against something with me. Her most popular one being you know, sweeping up the dust outside. And I don't know if I've ever told you, but I have asthma. (laughs) So like sweeping up dust outside in dry summer heat is like a terrible mixture, like especially at that young age when my asthma was really, really bad. Like I'd walk in the house and like cough a few times and like cough up a ball of dirt. It was disgusting. But, you know, it, it was I it was all worth it so that I didn't have to go to another group home. That's what caused the most stress was having that looming threat of if things didn't work here, then I'm going back to the group home. Right. You know, I don't think people know unless they've been through the system or unless they hear stories like this, what it's like for kids when they're taken into care. Exactly what you're talking about right now, that you felt like you had to almost be perfect, right? I had to walk on eggshells is is exactly how I would would describe it. And that's just super, super stressful. I really appreciate this because I know that even though you've been in therapy, maybe this isn't stuff that you regularly talk about, right? Um, No, honestly, uh, I didn't really have much of a problem talking about issues like this growing up. I guess for me, uh, at a certain point, there was the emotional disconnect for me where like um, I like I didn't feel saddened by the things that were happening. Um, Right. Can you give me an example of that, of how that manifested? I mean, the best example being when my grandma left me at DCFS and like didn't come back. Uh, I didn't cry in the office. I didn't like I didn't even appear like visibly upset. I pulled out my tech deck from my pocket, sat down on the floor and just started playing with it until it was time to go. And uh, there were still the lingering thoughts of like, while I'm playing with the tech deck of why didn't she come back or, you know, did I mess up? Did I do something wrong? But on the surface, it was uh, more of a this is kind of the situation that I have to deal with. Uh, Like, these are the cards that I have. I have to play this hand and I can cry about it if I want to, but that's not going to change the hand. And you were seven years old when she left you there. Yeah. So did you ever find out why? Was it that she just couldn't? 
couldn't handle raising a small child or or what? I don't know. It's a it's a question that I did ask uh, quite a few times throughout my life and uh, kind of just got different answers all around. I mean, the first time uh, she she said it was because of work. For a while, I accepted that as the answer because as a kid, I don't know what work is like and. I don't know if it's possible to both raise a kid and then go to work or or take a kid to school and also go to work. And then, you know, I turn like 18 and, you know, I'm sitting here thinking it can't just be because of work, because if that's the case, you know, that's what we have family members for. You can't pick me up. I can walk home from school at, at the age of 13. I can walk home from school at the age of 10, honestly. If that's not the case, there's cousins, there's babysitters that we know that are family. There's aunties, uncles that live a block away from you. So why is it that you can't take me to school and go to work? And then like uh, 21, I reached out to her again and, you know, just told her everything that I felt. Yeah, there were visitations, but visitation is just temporary in that to me. As a kid, yeah, I, I, I appreciate seeing you. But what it tells me is that you don't want to have that hands-on experience with it. it you want to look at it in, like, the display case. You just don't want to touch it. And I, I guess at a certain point, I kind of just stop. Like, I can't, I can't blame anyone for that, I guess. We all have certain levels of what we can and can't deal with. And for her, her cap just happened to be with me. Like I said, I was a pretty quiet kid while I was living with her. I I like I would go outside and I would sit in the backyard and play with boxes or like play with the dog after I got done with my homework. So you're really low maintenance is what you're saying. Very low maintenance kid, (laughs) like extremely. I didn't get sick very often. So, like, it just didn't make any sense to me. You know, I got in trouble a few times at school, but what young boy doesn't get in trouble at school from time to time? Right, so what's your life like now? Like, what about relationships? What's up with that? Uh, Interesting waters to navigate. Kind of right now, I'm on the verge of, like, giving up on the whole dating game. But, uh, you know... Okay, wait, 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 wait. Okay, you're 23, all right? Yes. Okay, I really hope you're not quite ready to give up. Nope. Okay, 23 good. and I am so oh, tired. No. I am absolutely exhausted. I only say that because, you know, it, I don't know. Maybe I, 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 I did it to myself by having, you know, relationships, I guess. And like, that sucks to say it like that. But that's kind of how it feels. Every relationship that I've gotten in is kind of just like blown up in my face. The last one being the biggest one where like, I, I I told myself I was going to do something that I usually don't, which is like be emotional, be emotionally like open, like break down that barrier that I've worked for so long to put up. And uh, when I did and kind of just like sat there and, and talked with her and like cried with her. Uh, two weeks later, we're fighting about like some random issue and like it's brought up and then like thrown in my face and kind of the only the only option i have is all right this is just gonna be toxic so i'm i have i have to walk away from this you mean she threw in your face like that you were emotional with her no she just brought up a like a lot of the issues that i was telling her that i was like sensitive about that like and she used them against you yeah you want to say how or no 
uh, I told her a, a, a lot of stories that I don't like to share because it, it, they put me in a bad mental space. And kind of, yeah, like I said, we were just having a fight. Uh, she gets irritated and she's like, you know, that's why, blah, you know, and it kind of, in, in that moment, it kind of felt like the world turned for me. And I, I kind of just saw everything in a different perspective of like, why am I putting in this much effort if I'm only going to get shot in the foot every time? Right. So you feel that you're a good boyfriend? I feel like I try to be. I don't know exactly what it takes to be a good boyfriend. I, I know I'm honest. I'm incredibly honest and I'm always up front. I don't hide. I don't keep secrets. That's what makes a good boyfriend. And yes, I, I, I feel like I'm most definitely a good boyfriend. You know, I do my best to listen. I do my best to, to be there in times of need whenever I can. And even when I can't, I still make sure that it's known that I'm here. You can still talk to me. It's just I might not be able to talk back for like a few hours, you know, stuff like that. In, in today's world, you will get called a simp for. And, and like being a simp is the last thing you want to be because nobody wants a freaking simp and it's stupid it's so stupid and it makes it like it, it gives me a headache kind of just thinking about it and like i don't know like i i've kind of just decided that now i'm only putting in the effort that i receive so i'm like i'm tired of going out and trying to impress women i'm tired of that like from now on i'm just gonna do me i'm just gonna vibe and live my life if if I meet somebody who, like, I mess with, I will put in as much effort as is given. So are you lonely now during COVID? Mm, no, no. Why? Because you got your games, you got your turtle behind you, right? That's that nugs? Uh, yeah, this is my, my buddy back there. He's up there basking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> He's basking? That's cool. In his light, right? He's got yeah. a, like, a nice warm light back there. You see the little glow up there? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not just the games that are keeping me from being lonely. It's uh, it's my friends. It's definitely my friends. My closest friends since high school kind of uh, have been really, really instrumental in in these times. Um, wow! Like just this weekend, we went out to to go kind of just watch the sunset together because you know we've all just been having the pretty rough couple of weeks. <laughs> Let me ask you, what would you say to like your 10 year old self about how to get through the next 10 years, 13 years? If you could talk to yourself, what would you say? There's a lot that I would say. For starters, I would tell him, be prepared to take everything as a joke in this life. A lot of things are going to be against you and either you can sit and allow them to win or you can laugh it off and walk away the victor. You know, I feel like the second that something is able to take your headspace and put it in a dark area, then you've already lost. But the second you start smiling, the second you start laughing is the second that all that kind of just melts away and it becomes unimportant. Yeah, it's still it might still be there, but now it's a lot more manageable because it's been broken down to like pieces that don't seem to matter anymore. And that's kind of what I would tell 10 year old me. Yeah. Take time to learn what matters, what and who matters. There's a lot of people that are, are, are supposed to be there that are, are just not going to be there. There's going to be a lot of people that you want to be there that also might not be there. But that doesn't mean no one's there. It just means you have to turn around and look the other way. You just have to look in another direction. So you have to do a 180 or 360 to see what else is around. Yeah, absolutely.
So, Vaughn, tell me, um, what's the one thing that people would never know about you unless you told them? And don't say you have a turtle, because you've already talked about the turtle. Because <laughs> I would never have guessed that you have a turtle. <laughs> oh, I love the turtle so much. Um, I guess one thing that people would never guess about me, uh, I am incredibly sad. I don't, I'm not very happy. I, I smile because it, it makes it, it makes it easier to get through the day, but... I'm a really mellow person because I, I, I'd much rather just be asleep or unconscious at the moment. You know, actually, I might have guessed that about you only because I'm a little bit that way too. I see also that you, you've just got really good armor. It's like what I was talking about before that you're just super charming and affable. And I understand now that that's masking a huge amount of pain. I, I don't know. I'm kind of like it's the first time I've kind of ever just been come out and be like, I am not happy. But like, as you can see, there's still a smile on my face. But I, I'm sorry. It's okay because this is what happens when we're human beings. You know, we have these personas that we put up, and we all have them. You know, they're all different shapes and sizes. Yours is a smiling one. I appreciate having this space to talk with you. It was... I really appreciate you being so forthcoming with me about this. I, mean, I know this wasn't the goal, but I definitely feel like I, you know, I pulled a bit of a weight off of my own chest. Really? Wow, that's really good. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Vaughn. Thank you, Jay. Vaughn still has a lot of work to do, but he's doing it, and he's helping others, too. It's a good combination. And he's searching for his own light to bask in. And I know he'll find it. And he continues to take care of himself. Because he has to. Because so many adults have failed him. And he has work to do, but don't we all? We all do. If you see something, say something. If you suspect that a child's health or safety is jeopardized in any way, by parents or anyone else, contact the Child Protective Services Agency in your county. 24-hour hotlines are staffed by trained social workers who will help you through the process, and you can do so anonymously. In California, you can call the Child Protection Hotline at 800-540-4000. And right now in COVID, reports of abuse and neglect are down by 50%. And that's not because it's not happening. It's because kids are not in school, and their teachers and other adults, mandated reporters, aren't seeing them. So if you see something, say something. You might be saving a child's life. And if you're an older kid in trouble, check out PennyLane.org. They offer a safe place for homeless and LGBTQ youth who need some help. And if you're a kid in care who wants a casa, you can ask for one. In Los Angeles, go to CasaLA.org. And anywhere else in the nation, Go to nationalcasagal.org, and you can get one. I want to thank the supremely talented Christina Apostolopoulos for her beautiful music, Eferisto. To hear more of her music, go to Spotify and Instagram at Christina Apostol. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-A-A-P-O-S-T-O. I know you want to. Her stuff is really great. And thanks to my audio producer extraordinaire, Marcos Campito. I'm glad I found you. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you hear, please rate us and hit subscribe. <laughs>